Good morning, church family. Uh, we are going to dive right in because we have a massive amount of ground we've got to cover this morning, and our time is limited unless you all voluntary, uh, volunteer to abstain from lunch, and I don't think that one's going to happen. So uh, if you would, take your Bibles. We're back in 1 Kings, and we're going to be in chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18. And just by way of reminder, let's remember where we where we came last week. Last week, we saw the kingdom of Israel is divided into two. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In that northern kingdom, ten of the tribes plus some Levites are now under the rule of King Ahab. And 1 Kings tells us that King Ahab is more wicked than any ruler who's come before him. We see that he marries a pagan woman, not just a pagan woman, but a woman whose father is a priest king of a false god. Jezebel comes in and wreaks havoc on Ahab and influences him in all sorts of ways. We see that Ahab continues to keep the alteration and changes of proper worship that his forefather Jeroboam brought about. We see that Ahab erects altars and builds a palace for Baal and lifts up the Asherahs. In his time, Jericho will sought to be rebuilt under his leadership. All of it means that under Ahab's rule, there is a complete and total disregard for who God is and what he says in the northern kingdom of Israel. Society would be rampant with everyone doing their own thing, bowing to bells, but yet at the same time as we'll see today, still saying they follow God and, and finding a way to mix it. You can imagine the deconstruction conversations to try to synthesize Baal and the one true God. And in the midst of this, we watched last week as the Lord showed Himself to be the living God. While Bell is dead, God is alive, and in, in him and being the living God, he is the one who speaks. He is the one who provides, who protects, who prepares. We see him ruling. We see him saving. And in response to him, we found Elijah standing in service, and we watched as the widow responded in faith. On this massive national cosmic scale, as we'll see today, what is essentially a world war between two gods, last week we saw it on a very personal level. And this week we take a little bit of a time jump. So look with me, 1 Kings chapter 18. We've just seen in chapter 17, the widow's son raised, says this, Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. You'll remember that as, as a response to Israel's disobedience in line with what God told Israel way back at Sinai and Deuteronomy, if you walk in idolatry, one of the ways I will discipline you is I will bring famine upon the land. Not because I'm trying to hate you, but because I am going to bring and allow hardship to pull you back to me. And so famine has been on the land. Elijah has prayed day and night for the previous three years that there be no rain from the sky and dew from the ground. And it's happened. And it's so bad. Look at this. Ahab called Obadiah. We're introduced to someone new. Obadiah, who was over the household. Obadiah is essentially the chief of the palace. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, 
For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. It's a little background on Obadiah. Here's somehow this man who's the head of the palace, but somehow walks in fear of God and has not been caught, and he's actively protecting others. So Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land, all the springs of water, all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and, and keep, to keep the horses and mules alive and we'll not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land up, they go out. Here's what he's doing, Ahab and Obadiah, and it must be bad because why would Ahab be the one doing this kind of meaningless task? But they go out and they're going to find, we got to find anything. We got to find even a nugget, of, you know, just one blade of grass. If we can find a cup of water, we got to keep the animals alive. Why? Fire's going to fall, but not yet. <laughs> or an earthquake. That's next week. Uh, <laughs> they're going out. They've got to keep the, the animals of war healthy. They've got to keep the source of food for the people alive. So they're going out and doing this. The famine is for now. Just, just imagine this with me for a second, church family. It is horrid outside. And if somebody likes this weather, we have got to do some counseling. <laughs> but I want you to imagine this weather, this climate, the dead grass that crunches under your feet in your front yard, that plant and tree you're desperately trying to keep alive as your water bill goes through the roof. I want you to imagine this for three and a half years with no rain, no dew which means no sprinkler systems and no water hoses, no pools, lakes drying up, livestock failing, food going scarce, no fruits, no vegetables. This is the situation that Israel finds themselves in. This is the situation that Ahab and Obadiah are going out and scouring to look for whatever they can find. Now look with me. As Obadiah was on his way, verse 7, behold, out of nowhere, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? Elijah said to Obadiah, It is I. Go say to your master, referring to Ahab, Behold, Elijah is here. So uh, Obadiah, you can imagine, he's wandering in what was once a wheat field, now is just a bunch of brown, uh, crunchy grass and dirt. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the most wanted, most hunted man in the kingdom who has, success, has not been seen or heard from for three and a half years since he walked into Ahab and said, Ahab, because of your idolatry, God is going to shut the heavens up and drought and famine are coming. Out of nowhere, Ahab shows up. Obadiah is surprised. And so Elijah says, hey, go tell Ahab I'm here. But look at what Obadiah says. What sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent to search for you. And when they said those kingdoms, he's not here, Ahab made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you're saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here? It will come about when I leave you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. So when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. 
Has it not been told to my master, referring to Elijah, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave, provided them bread and water, and now you're saying, go to Ahab and say, behold, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Now, we could spend a whole sermon just walking through what's going on with Obadiah, but what you need to understand is, what is Obadiah's fear? The text says prior to Obadiah ever speaking, that Obadiah is a man who fears God. And his fear of the Lord is not just left without action. We know he fears God because at the risk of his own life, working in a position where he would easily be caught, he has protected prophets of God, people who fear the Lord. He has protected them and provided them But at the same time, his fear here is not a matter of unfaithfulness to the Lord, as best we can tell. It's a very normal human response to say, I know, Elijah, that God has supernaturally protected you. If I go tell, it's a very normal human reaction. To which Elijah says, remember last week, as the Lord of hosts, that's a term referring to the God who is Lord of angel armies, the the Lord of hosts, the God of the warriors of heaven, as He lives, before whom I stand in service, I will show myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went and met Ahab and told him, and Ahab came to meet Elijah. Now look what happens here. Can you imagine this moment? Here's the man who's pronounced judgment on the land. You're the king. Can you imagine the the tension of this moment? Hot, nasty sun beating down when Ahab saw Elijah. Can you imagine the rage filling up in him? Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel, you disturber of the peace, you ruiner of the land? Notice the accusation, is this really you, Elijah, you who destroyed it all? Elisha says, I am not, I have not troubled Israel. I'm not the ruiner, but you and your father's house have because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Here's what he says. He says, Ahab, it's not me who's caused the problem in the land. It's you and your father's house. It's the pagan worship you've brought in. It's the way you've led the people in idolatry. But is this not the norm that we see even to this day? The righteous are blamed for every woe of society. The holy are targeted for the sufferings and sorrows of the culture around them. When the reality is the devastation of idolatry is not at the hands of those who walk righteously, it is at the hands of the idolatry itself. And Elijah's going to Give him the word that God says. Look what he says. Elijah's not just out there to have a meeting. He's going to propose a challenge. He says, Now send, gather to me all Israel. Get the head of the tribes up here at Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel, and he brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now understand some background, church family. That would... That would that uh, fills in this challenge. Elijah shows up and he says, now's the time. At the word of the Lord, Elijah doing what God says, he shows up to Ahab, now's the time. We're going to see who really brings the rain. 
Who, who is the real God? Is it Baal or is it? And he says, here's what I want you to do. Get the heads of the tribes who lead the tribes, who provide that leadership. I want you to bring the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Now remember, Baal, prominent Canaanite God, and he is the God of the storm, who is pictured riding on the storm clouds as his chariots and throwing fire from heaven. He is the one who brings the rains and provides the dew. He is the one who then gives the fertile crop. This is who Baal is. He says, bring the prophets of Baal. And by the way, if drought ensued, it was believed, and I mentioned this last week, it's because Baal had been temporarily caught and defeated by the God of death. And Mount Carmel this picturesque, beautiful mountain rising up off the Mediterranean coast, situated between the land of Jezebel and the kingdom of Israel. You go, ah, he's picking a, a beautiful site for this contest. Oh no, far more than that. Carmel was to believe to be as a mountain the throne of Baal. Understand the challenge, church family. Elijah has said, go get the best of Baal's prophets, the best of his people, and let's go to Baal's home court. Let's go to his own throne room. We're going to have it out and see who brings the rain. Listen to what Elijah says. As all the people are there, by the way, catch that. This is not today's world. A mass text and tweet didn't go out, and 20 minutes later, everybody drove up to Carmel. It would have taken time. There would have been anticipation to this battle. People would have been talking. Did you hear? Did you hear the prophets of Baal are going to go up? Elijah's back in town. Did you hear God's going to take on Baal? Baal's going to take on. What do you think is going to happen? Anticipation would be high. It's easy to imagine that. It's like the anticipation every year Aggie and Longhorn fans have for the football season. Only unlike historically those seasons which are disappointing, we won't be disappointed by this chapter. Look what he says. All the people are gathered. They're up there on Carmel. You've got the prophets of Baal, of Asherah, Ahab. You've got the head of the tribes. And Elijah says to the people, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? Or quite literally, how long will you limp between two crutches? How long are you going to seek to straddle the fence? Because what was taking place in Israel is they were bowing down and worshiping Baal, by the way, which would involve, we'll see in a moment, self-mutilation and harm. It would involve sacrificing crops to a God who gives nothing. It would involve uh, gross sexual immorality. It could even involve child sacrifice. How long are you going to limp between Baal and the one true God? You need to decide once for all. And he says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But look at the people. The people did not answer him a word. Decide who you're going to follow. Yet what's the sound? Absolute silence. Now here's what we're going to do. And he's going to describe what's going to happen. He's going to say, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get an oxen. You're going to cut it. You're going to prepare the sacrifice. And we're going to each call on our God. And whichever God consumes the sacrifice with fire, that's the one true God. This is what he proposes. And look at the end of 24. And all the people said, that is a good idea. We agree. And so Elijah to the prophets of Baal, he says, hey. And in verses 25 through there, he's going to say is, hey, 
Just so Baal's not angry, since we're in his house at his throne, you go first. You pick the best of, of the oxen. You pick the best sacrifice. You go first. There's so many of you. I'm only one. Understand, the deck is completely stacked against God. Baal's home court. He's got hundreds of, I mean, there's 850 prophets tied to false worship there. They get first pick. So they took the ox, verse 26, they prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And after hours of calling and no answer in response, they leapt about the altar which they had made. They start to dance in crazy and wild ways. And it comes about noontime, Elijah mocks them. And he says, why don't you cry out with a loud voice? Which is ironic because followers of Baal believed that in the heat of battle, if they cried out with a loud voice, he would respond to them and deliver them. Why don't you cry louder? Because he's a God, meaning he's, he might be preoccupied. Either he is occupied, meaning maybe he's lamenting or maybe he's worried. Maybe he's engaged in a business deal. It carries all of those. And here's my favorite. Maybe he's gone aside, which could mean which could mean on one hand, maybe he's, maybe he's over here a little busy, but it could also mean uh, he might be in the bathroom. It's what, it's what the Hebrew says. I'm not making a joke. That's what the Hebrew is. It's great. Bible languages. So he mocks, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he needs to be awakened. So they respond to this. They cry louder. They cut themselves. Blood gushed out on them. When the midday passed, they raved. They just started saying nonsense until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. You catch the scene. They're up there. They're before Baal, this God they've taught, this God they, they've prophesied for. Thus says Baal, and they're there. Hear us, Baal, we're at your throne. And it, and it just gets bad and worse. They're gushing blood. They're dancing like lunatics. They're crazy. And for at least six hours, nothing happens. Then Elijah said to the people, and notice this about God, Elijah said to the people, come near to me. Come near. Come see. So the people came near to him, and Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord. There at one time had been an altar on Mount Carmel to the one true God. And that word repair literally is a word that means to heal, because it had been torn down. And symbolically, Elijah, he, he heals the altar of proper worship to the one true God. He takes 12 stones reflective of the unified nation of Israel, which has been broken down. He says, Israel shall be your name. With, with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around it large enough to hold uh, two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood. He cut the oxen pieces, laid it on the wood. And then he said this, so here's... Here's the picture. He's gotten all the sacrifice ready. He's dug this random trench. And then he says, hey, go fill up four pitchers of water. And they do it three times. They douse the altar in so much water that the entire trench overruns. Now, that's what Elijah's doing. The deck is stacked against Yahweh. There, Elijah's one. He can't do near as much work as the 850 prophets. They're on Baal's home turf. 
This is a challenge that's right in the heart of Baal. Baal's the God who rides the storm and sends the fire from heaven. And now not only that, but his sacrifice is second, and he just doused it in water. And, and, and maybe, maybe uh, you're not a scientist like me, but when you douse a sacrifice in so much water that it floods the trench, it's really hard to burn. No, Elijah wants it to be clear to the people of Israel. God wants to be clear to the people of Israel that there is no trickery, there is no manipulation. He and he alone is God. Look what happens. At the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known you are the God in Israel. I am your servant. I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they prostrated themselves. They fell on their faces flat and they said, the Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. So catch what happens. The prophets of Baal rant and rave. Trice they call out. Elijah does all this and he simply prays and he says, Lord, I want it to be clear. You're God. I'm your prophet. What's taking place is not because I'm some crazy powerful person. It's simply your word. I'm honoring your word. This is your battle. And let it be known that your God, would everybody see that you're God, not just the Israelites, but even the prophets of Baal, would the nation see that you're God? And all of this has been about one thing, you turning the hearts of your people back. And Elijah says twice, answer me. The prophets of Baal prayed twice and got nothing but dead silence. Elijah doesn't rant. He doesn't rave. He just confidently prays the word and will of God, and fire falls. And fire is a big deal, church family, in Scripture. Fire falling is a sign of God's presence, of His approval. We see fire falls in Leviticus as a sign of His presence and approval of worship at the tabernacle. In First Chronicles, fire falls at the threshing floor to show that that will be the site of His future temple. In Second Chronicles, fire falls upon the temple as the sacrifices is laid. When fire falls, it's a sign to Israel, I am the one true God. I'm the bringer of the rain. I'm the sender of the fire from heaven. And this is the way in which you are to walk and worship me. Here you will find my presence. Not only that, but it describes, and it gives all those little details, it, it even licked up all the dust. What's the point? The fire consumed everything. Nothing was left because God is an all-consuming fire. He is not after part of the sacrifice. He is not after part of the lives of the Israelites. He is after all because he is God alone and worthy of all. And the response the people see, they bow down. Elijah gives them commands to seize the prophets of Baal, and they seize them and they slay them in accordance with Old Testament law. But, but remember the beginning of the chapter, church family. The whole beginning of the chapter was, go present yourself, I'm going to bring rain. There hadn't been any rain yet. Oh, but now there's hope. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. Isn't that interesting? Here's the wicked man Ahab. Yet the prophet of God invites him to go get some rest, eat and drink in a display of the grace of God. So Ahab does it. Elijah goes up to Carmel. He crouches down in a, in a posture of humility. 
and he prays. He tells his servant, go look at the sea. So there's nothing there. He said, go back. This happened seven times. Each time he's praying. And then finally, the seventh time, there's a small cloud. And he says, good. Go up to Ahab. He says to Ahab, prepare your chariot. Go. A little while later, the sky goes black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. Here comes the rain. You can imagine the people running out. Wow, the cool of the rain breeze, the, the ground drinking up. Here comes the healing. There is hope. In a supernatural act, Elijah runs ahead of Ahab's chariot and beats him to Jezreel. And in a picturesque, the prophet of God representing the word of God is leading out in front of the king of the land for all of a sudden it seems like as as God has sent the fire, as God has demonstrated who he is, there is hope in the land again. Rain is falling. The king actually obeys Elijah's words in these few verses. The days to come could be bright because God is the one true God. God says unequivocally and in every way, your idol Israel, Baal is not just not a God. He's not a weaker God. He is nothing because I am the one true God. Hear, O Israel, hear, O church family, the Lord's your God. The Lord is one. There is one true God, church family. And we need to remember today that God is God alone. There is no other. He is God alone universally. He's God in Israel. He's God on Baal's sacred mountain. He's God alone in America. He's God alone in postmodern Europe and in communist China and in totalitarian North Korea. He's God alone in every third world nation to every first world nation. He's God alone at the mountains of Mars to the rings of Saturn to the bands of the Milky Way. There is no place in all creation, seen or unseen, where God is not God alone. He's not just God alone universally. He's God alone timelessly, church family. There's no time that God is not God alone. He's God alone in the past. He's God alone in the present. He will be God alone in the future unto all eternity. He is God alone when nations rise up and praise him. He is God alone when the people of God are outnumbered and the nations seek to overthrow him. There's no time when God is not God alone. Not only that, but he is almightily God alone, meaning it does not matter how many forces of creation, seen or unseen, people or demons or nature that would dare throw their power against him, he is God alone. He is the Lord of hosts. He is God alone. And we better be sure today, church family, that we see the clear sign. We don't look to fire from heaven. We look to a cross and an empty tomb, and we await one to come. He is God alone. Nothing has changed. And as God alone, he's the one who answers. Do you see that in the text? Answer us, Baal, dead silence. Answer me, God, fire falls. He's the God who answers. It's God alone. He hears. He sees. He knows, and his response to people is not based on how much we rant and rave and try to do works to get his attention. His reason for answering is because he is inherently good. His eye is on the sparrow. And if his eye is on every nasty sparrow on a power line, how much more men and women, boys and girls, made in his image He is the one who answers where idols are silent. He is 
God alone and is the one who is jealous over his people. Did you catch that? He is an all-consuming fire. Church family, God does not want a part of our lives. Jesus Christ demands all of our lives. Yes, salvation is free. We can do nothing to earn salvation. We are born sinners. There is no amount of work we can do to earn salvation and receive grace. If there was, it wouldn't be grace. But you better believe if we receive his offer of salvation, it is not cheap. It costs God's Son on the cross to secure our redemption. And it's why Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, by my grace I will save you, and then every day take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. God is an all-consuming fire, church family. He leaves no room in our lives for any idols. He does not placate our idols. Notice with Israel, he doesn't go, well, you know, your bell worship is only at the point where you throw some wheat down. We'll just, we won't address it. No. God is not going to allow idolatry to reign. He's going to expose it. This is what he does because he is a jealous God. And not jealous in the way that you and I might be jealous of someone who has something we don't want. What we mean by jealous is he is God alone. And if he is God alone, then he is worthy of all. So let's be clear. If Jesus is really my Savior, then that means he must also be Lord over every last drop of my life. Because he is God alone. As C.S. Lewis said, he is not a tame lion. He is worthy of our worship alone. Every drop of our being, every speck of our daily life, our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our sorrows, our pains, He desires it all, the totality of our being. So what does that mean for you and I? This is what He's showing Israel here. I am God alone. Well, what's the call? The call to them is the same call to us. The first is you and I need to recognize where we are wavering in idolatry. We need to recognize if if you are in Christ, you're not just completely bowed down to idolatry. If you've responded to Jesus' offer of salvation and and repentance and faith in Christ, what, what you and I will do is we will waver. We will limp on two crutches. It's beautiful imagery. We will, we will show up at church, we will pray if called upon, but oh man, over here when it comes to how we use our time, we will do everything and anything to chase the fame and pleasure of society and people. We limp back and forth. We need to recognize where we waver. We need to recognize it because idolatry is sneaky, church family. And our hearts can make an idol of anything. Our hearts can make an idol of anything because we're blinded to it easily. Well, what is our idolatry today? Well, understand. Let me just define what is an idol. This is my definition, but it tries to take what's clear there. An idol is any part of creation seen or unseen. Physically on this earth, angels, demons, ideas, any part of creation to which we live in worship and service, We worship it. We deem it worthy. We serve it. We do things for it. With which we derive our value and worth, my worth and value, not tied to to who I am in Christ, not tied to what I am as a creation image bearer of God, but tied to my, my interaction with this idol, this thing. And not just that, but from which we expect reward and fulfillment. We worship it. We serve it. We derive our value from it. And it's all because we expect to get something from it. And we do this everything. Success. 
can be, it's not wrong to succeed, but it's wrong to worship success. Comfort, it's not wrong to be comfort. I hope you're comfortable on the cushion pew. Yesterday, I remembered for the first time, was we were at a funeral, wooden pews are very uncomfortable. My body was not made for them. Comfort's not bad. But the worship and pursuit and service of comfort is bad. Fame and reputation, whether that's in your job, school, community, social media, even in the church, personal dreams can become. We can make idols out of our emotions. Well, whatever I feel, I will follow. I'm going to pursue this lifestyle because of how it makes me feel. Control can be an idol. Peace at all costs, expectations, daydreams. We can make an idol of the past. Oh, I'm guilty of that one, church family. Oh, if only things were the way they used to be. It was so good then. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being nostalgic and remembering the past. It's good to remember. But it's bad to bow down and worship the past as if it's God. And that if we could just go back to the past somehow, all our problems would be fixed. No, we don't need to go back to the past. The past had just as many idols as today. What we need to do is we need Christ. These are our... All of these, when we, any of these things determine our value, dictate our effort, consume our thoughts, they are idols. When we disregard the person and word of God in the service and, and pursuit of these things, they are idols and we are living in a form of idolatry. And understand there's a deception there. You know, ask, maybe we haven't asked this question yet, but how did Israel, you've got this beautiful structure of worship. God doesn't ask you to give every, he didn't ask you. In fact, it's wrong in, in Levitical law to mutilate your body. He abhors sacrifice of people. Like when you look at what God actually calls, it is good. How do you go from that to all sorts of rampant, flagrant immorality and self-mutilation and even child sacrifice? Well, it's real simple. There's five aspects in the text of how it happened. This is how, how bell worship, how idolatry comes. It's supported and promoted by the state and the elites. Let me put it this way. The cool, the powerful, the influential people are into it. It's culturally favorable, meaning this was the way for you to move up in society. It's easy universalism, meaning idols don't ask us for exclusivity. I can bow down to the idol of wealth. I can bow down to the idol of my expectations. I can bow down to this idol and that idol, and I can kind of pick and choose what I want to bow down to today. Easy, the universal it focuses exclusively on felt needs. The worship of Baal had nothing to do with my being a sinner and needing a right relationship with God. It had to do with give me food, give me stuff, get me this, get me that. Not only that, but fifth, it gratified any and all sexual and desires. Do we not see the same five reasons why idolatry is popular in culture today? Amen. But understand, if that's the deception of idolatry, we've got to recognize the futility of idolatry. That idol that you and I will pursue, that you and I will lay things down to, that we will give anything to go after, can give nothing. You can obtain more success and power than anyone could ever dream of, and you will still have a rotting hole in your heart. Look at our own country. There is no nation more powerful, more prosperous than our nation, yet at the same time, our rates of depression and suicide are higher than at any time. There is futility and idolatry. And there is danger. 
And maybe we say, if I'm, you know, we make an idol out of, let's just take this for Simpson. Because this was a, a major piece of idolatry when I was a, young, a younger man. Idolizing sports, my performance in athletics, how I played, gave me worth, gave me value, whatever I could do to be better. Yeah, I still went to church. Yeah, I still praise Jesus. Yeah, I still, but, but my worth, my value, my ability to talk to you on one day and look you in the eyes was tied to how well I played the night before, even though you don't care at all about what happened in a Sandy Koufax Pony League ball game at Sue Haswell Park. You didn't even know it existed. You seek and you hunger that. Well, that's, that's not that bad. I mean, that's just, that's just, being, a, just being a teenage guy. There's, there's no danger there. Church family, look in the text. The danger of Israel's idolatry was absolute destruction in the nation. Oh, this, it's just sports. It's not that bad. Okay, well, let's fast forward the clock. Today, it's often bemoaned that millennials, young people, we don't go to church. We don't value the church. Even those who claim Christ as Lord. Well, could it be because that innocent little bowing down to sports that took us out of church every week to go play our tournament baseball games at the time when our worldview was cementing taught us that our personal recreation and what we idolized was more important than the command of Christ which said, do not neglect, not suggestion, command, do not neglect coming together as a church body. Now, that's one of many. I'm not saying you can't ever miss a Sunday for something. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what that passage would say. But are we surprised that my generation has wholeheartedly rejected the importance of the church life? No, because that innocent little idolatry, we fed it. And in truth, some of us as parents, it was our idolatry wanting to make our kids' life and give them everything so we could feel good about ourselves that even drove it. How many teenagers have I counseled? I would love to quit my extracurricular activities, but mom and dad will not let me. Oh, time is too short. I can't go on more and more and more. There's so many things. It could be selling out for work and comfort in the way that it wreaks havoc on your family and your friends. It could be people-pleasing and loneliness, doing whatever. We need to see there is a real danger. Idolatry does not bring fulfillment. It brings death. And hear me real, real shortly, church family, as we recognize where we're wavering, we also need to recognize the incredible grace of God and repent of our idolatry. Fire falling from heaven was not to sit there and, and condemn and hate on the Israelites. It was to draw them back to God. Do you see Ahab? Ahab is as wicked as they come, yet God doesn't strike him down. He shows him grace and gives him an opportunity to come back, to lead the people back. Church family, that same offer, all of us will at times bow down to idols. We may be completely bowed down. We may be wavering. Whatever it may be, if you are in Christ, see the same grace of God that saved you, and may we repent. And maybe go, I don't know what I'm idolizing. I know they're there. Well, Lord, show me so I can repent. Or maybe you're in this room today and you say, I don't know Jesus. I am just prostrate down at the feet of Baal then would you please hear of the incredible grace of God today that, that if you would cry out from the feet of Baal and say, Lord, I get it, Baal is not real, but you are the one true God. Oh, Christ will come and save you and give you life. Amen. We need to recognize where we're wavering. We need to respond in repentance so that we worship Him in proper reverence. 
the people of God at this understanding that God is one. They repent. They, they, they fall down at his feet. They worship God. They worship him. They depend on him. They, they, in a moment, stop looking to Baal for rain and start looking to Christ for rain. It's not just repent of the idolatry. It's repent so we're looking to the right one. We need rain, but we've got to look to the only one who can give it. That's what worship is. We do this by by being obedient to his words. You catch that with Elijah? Thus, thus says the Lord, thus does Elijah. We need to stand where God stands. We say what he says, how he says it, when he says it, even if our culture says it's extreme. We stand where he stands on every issue. We value what he values in life. And some of us, that'll be on a very prominent stage, outspoken like Elijah. Some of us, that will be very quietly hiding prophets and keeping them safe like Obadiah. That's for God to choose the time and place, but worship means obedience to his word and understand, church family. We respond by worshiping him faithfully in reverence, even when he seems distant and the rains aren't coming. Please understand, church family, one person standing with God has more power behind him than all the forces of Satan aligned against him. Understand this, Elijah, for three years, he's lived in the wilderness, eating food from those very nasty sparrows, bringing him ravens. He's lived in the, the heart of, of the country of Bel, at danger with, with a widow. He has experienced hardship in this. He, is, he has prayed. By the way, Elijah is a man of prayer. Prays once for the fire to fall, three times for a boy to rise, seven times for rain to come, and I tallied it up, it's over 1,700 times for rain to not come, because he prayed every day at least once a day for it not to come, which is why if we worship, we don't give up in our prayer. We pray his will until he either redirects or answers. But church family, understand, Obadiah went to work every day, not afraid to lose his job, but afraid for his life, knowing his life could be in danger. There were prophets of God walking faithfully who weren't living in luxury or comfort. They were hid out in caves eating a, a diet of, of water and bread. And by the way, water back then wouldn't have been your nice Brita water filter. See, church family, God vindicates the lives of those who walk with him, but we need to understand it may not be with a glorious lifestyle. His vindication is found in His constant provision and support of His people, even when times are hard. Church family, if He's God alone, we've got to worship who He is in reverent worship and reverence and honor because He and He is God alone. So who are we? Are we Elijah, Obadiah, fearing God? at the Word of God, standing for God? Are we the people of Israel wavering back and forth between our idolatry in our salvation in Christ, are we Ahab or the prophets of Baal, not even with God at all, in need of repentance? So I don't know where we are today, but the Lord does. And as we move into this time of response, oh Lord, church family, may we have open hands and ready feet. Let's pray. Father, you are God alone. And so we look to you. In this time of response, may we worship you. In this time of response, may we repent of idolatry. In this time of response, if there is anyone watching online or in this room who doesn't know you, may today be the day of salvation. May they come to know you through your grace today. May they know your fulfillment. May they know your hope. May they know your joy, even in the midst of drought, which their idols can never fulfill and bring. 
Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.